0: Hey folks, thank you for tuning in to the Grad School Sucks podcast, the show for grad students who want to survive grad school and thrive in their career afterwards. I'm your host, Matt Carlson, and today I've got something special prepared for you. I've been thinking a lot about my own journey from my academic job as a research scientist after I graduated to industry where I am now, and I've been trying to clarify what were the steps that I actually took to go from uh, academia to industry, and then what are are these the same steps that others uh, need to make when they leap from PhD to industry? So I'm going to share some of those thoughts here today, and then I'm also going to reshare a past podcast episode with Dr. Shaquinta Richardson, one of my favorites and one of our most downloaded episodes. In this episode, we talk about self care as academics and former academics, as well as how to start your own business. This will be the last rebroadcasted episode that I do for a while, so be expecting brand new episodes every week starting in January. But before we get to today's episode, I want to remind you about the grad school sticker giveaway that I'm currently holding on Instagram. If you are in grad school, if you like to laugh, and if you like stickers, then you're in luck. I want you to sign up today to win 14 unique grad school themed stickers that were designed, printed, and mailed to you by yours truly. If you are willing to answer a few extra questions about stickers after you enter the giveaway, I will personally mail you three grad school stickers guaranteed. So, uh, if you want to enter the giveaway, Look in the description of this podcast episode for a link, click that link, fill out the questions, and then you're good to go. So on to today's episode, uh, again, I wanted to start off with a brief description of what I call the six steps from PhD to industry. So uh, these six steps are number one, choose your career destination. Number two, transform your CV into a resume. Number three, upskilling certificates and portfolios. Number four, make a good LinkedIn profile. Number five, take stock of your network and leverage it. Number six, apply, apply, apply. Again, the six steps. One, choose a career. Two, CV to resume. Three, upskilling certificates portfolios. Four is LinkedIn five is your network, your professional network, and six is apply. So these are the steps that I took in order to go from uh, my PhD job as a research scientist to a job in industry that was somewhat unrelated to what I was doing as an academic. And I'm not going to be able to talk about all six today. Uh, And I don't even, I haven't even fully formed my thoughts on all six today. But I want to start with square one, which is choose a career destination. I'll talk about that for a few minutes. And then in episodes in the future, I will talk about each of the other steps. And then I'll probably have a blog post about it and maybe, I don't know, do a webinar one day or I don't want to get ahead of myself. But so the first step, the first thing I did uh, whenever I knew academia was not going to be my home long term and I was sick of it and I wanted to get out was I started to think about... Well, what do I do next? Which is I know where a lot of people end up. Um, and frankly, the number of job options that are available to you in industry are almost paralyzing. You know, you can go into anything from a super technical field, like programming to something person oriented, like sales, or management and really anywhere in between and in academia we often have like what like two or three options you can go teaching you can go research you can do a mixture you know maybe you do a postdoc in between uh, going to grad school and a professor position of course there's adjuncting but who wants to do that long term um, you know there's really not a lot to pick from and so I think for folks who aren't thinking about an industry job from the get go, once you get to that point as a grad student or after grad school where you're looking in industry, it's a little crazy making when you think about all the things you could be doing. So, uh, whenever I looked, uh, the jobs were honestly kind of endless. And I think there's a little bit of a pressure, especially if you need money, um, you know, especially if it's a brand new world to be looking at industry for you. There's a little bit of pressure to consider everything and apply to everything. And, and I, I want to encourage you to, to really think about what do you want to do long-term and really hone in to, two maybe three specific job titles that you want to apply to in industry. So, I think it's best to limit the amount of job titles you apply to and this is for a couple reasons. One, it makes it more likely you'll actually get a job. So they say aim small, miss small, and I think that certainly applies in this case. If you have a clear destination, it's much more likely you'll end up near that target. And this is for a lot of reasons, which I'll get into. Um, But one of them is that you're just really not gonna be prepared for doing multiple job searches. And when I say job searches, I mean you're searching for a specific job. You're not just searching for a job. And every type of job that you apply to really requires a search in and of itself. It not only will likely require its own resume and cover letter, if you're applying to jobs that take cover letters, and interview guide, questions to prepare for, each type of job will also require extra work that you may not even realize. So an example is that recruiters are often looking for um, candidates who, have, who use insider language in their industry. That's something that a recruiter will hear and say, oh, this person is kind of like woke to what we're doing in this field. And you, you need to learn what that language is And each industry or each type of job you apply to may have different language. Another thing is that you need to learn what the income band or income ranges for specific jobs, and they can vary pretty widely, and you don't want to get caught in a position where you say that you're looking for a salary that's pretty low for the kind of job that you're trying to get, or one that way overshoots what you could possibly hope to achieve. So uh, it's best to have a small amount of specific job titles you're trying to apply to. Another reason is that it's uh, less work. You know, like I said before, you're going to have to make resumes and cover letters that are focused on each kind of job. And if you exhaust yourself with making 15 different kinds of document packages for each job, you're going to lose your enthusiasm. And you really need to be able to maintain that high energy, uh, both emotionally, but also the high cognitive. just awareness that it takes to do job interviews because job interviews are exhausting. Uh, Let's see what else we got. The the last part is that um, when it comes to picking a specific job, the reason I think you should pick a specific job and go for it instead of applying widely or getting stuck in analysis paralysis is that in the long run, it might actually not matter what your first job is. So just pick something and go for it. You know, in my own search, I think I ruminated far too long on choosing an industry to go into. I spent a lot of time preparing to go into that industry and uh, making sure that I had all the things on my resume ticked off that I needed to. And uh, guess what? The longer it went on, the more my enthusiasm went down. And then ultimately, the industry I got into, once I actually was in the job doing it, wasn't necessarily something that I saw myself doing 5, 10, 15 years down the road. So I think think it does matter what job you get, but when you think about getting a job in industry, it's so much different than getting a job in academia. I had a professor at UGA that his professor job there was the job he got right away out of grad school, and he never left that job. And I think when we think about getting that tenure track job and kind of being like hunkered down at a university for life, uh, we kind of translate that thinking into thinking about industry jobs. But honestly, most people don't expect you to stay in one job in industry for more than like two or three years. And so I don't get bent out of shape overpicking what job you're going to go into, but also don't get stuck in analysis process because really you just need to break into industry. That that first job is going to be the hardest one to get. And so just breaking into industry so that you can keep your career moving forward is a really great thing to think about. So speed (laughs) may be just as important Compared to accuracy, or maybe even more important sometimes, because you don't even know what a job is gonna be like if you've never actually done it before. Um, so don't sweat it for your first job. Pick a career path that makes sense and that you would be a good candidate for and start applying. No one is gonna expect you to stay in that job forever. So, a couple other things to think about, and then we'll be done and on to our interview. The first thing is consider choosing two or three job titles that are complementary to each other. So for instance, I was looking at data analyst and data scientist positions uh, originally when I was doing my job search. And they are pretty related. Data analyst is more on the actual analyzing end. Data scientist is more on the like backend, warehousing of data, data pipelines, uh, preparing data for data analysts to mine, that kind of a thing. But both require like knowing how to code, knowing statistics, Um, knowing how data applies to business outcomes and how it can influence decision making. And the industry language is pretty similar. So uh, The one difference is, though, data scientists make a lot more and it's considered a more advanced position. So I was kind of diversifying my risk by applying to data analyst jobs, which are more likely to get, which is the job that I did end up getting, and data scientist jobs that are more advanced, pay a little bit higher, much less likely to get straight out the door. So. That wraps up the first step on the uh, path from PhD to industry. And now that you are thinking about what specific job titles that you want to prepare your heart, mind, and resume for, uh, now that you know the destination, the next step of the journey would actually be transforming your CV into a resume, but we're gonna cover that next week. So, uh, again, the six steps to Uh, PhD to industry, choose your career destination, which is what we went over today. Number two is transform your CV into a resume. Number three is upskilling certificates and portfolios. Number four is make a good LinkedIn profile. Number five is take stock of your professional network and leverage it. Then number six is apply, apply, apply. So uh, that is all from me for today. Uh, we are going to go into our interview with Shaquinta. Uh, this one is one of the <coughs> one of the first five interviews uh, that I did, and honestly, it was a great one. Um, I really love Shaquinta as a person, and I'm so glad that I am friends and colleagues with her. And I'm so glad to be able to share her journey and her wisdom with you today. So without further ado, let's get to the interview, Dr. Shaquinta Richardson. And in January, we'll have brand new episodes. So stay classy, grad students, and see y'all next time.
1: Um, but I had a moment while I was home, and I stopped and I asked myself, I was like, okay, it's gone. It's, all, it's gone. There's nothing you can do about that. You can't change that. Now what do you want? What do you want to do? Do you want this Ph.D. or do you not want this Ph.D.?
0: Welcome to the Grad School Sucks podcast, where we believe that your life and career after grad school should rock. I'm your host, Matt Carlson, and today I'm talking with my good friend, Dr. Shaquinta Richardson. Shaquinta is a badass of a human being. She's currently a licensed marriage and family therapist practicing out of the state of Texas, and previously she was faculty and clinic director at a master's level therapy program. Shaquinta is also a sought-after life coach who works with high-achieving black women to develop balance and boundaries, as well as craft routines and mindsets around self-care. Today's episode is pure gold. Shaquinta and I start off talking about how she grew up in poverty and saw education as the way out of bad circumstances. She discusses the trials she faced in getting through grad school and becoming a faculty member, including financial uncertainty and racial discrimination. We chat about why she chose early on to not pursue a career in research and why she decided to start a business around bringing self-care practices to other black women quick note today's episode does have some swearing in it including f-bombs if you've got kids co-workers or others around and you don't want them to hear that kind of speech i suggest you find some headphones anyway i'm so excited to be able to bring you my conversation with shaquinta today be sure to stick around to the very end of the episode to hear shaquinta's responses to our bonus questions without further ado let's get to the interview All right, well, let's get started. Thank you so much, Shaquinta, for joining me today. I am pleased to be able to introduce to all the listeners, Dr. Shaquinta Richardson from Beyond Achieving. Shaquinta is a life coach for black women working on issues such as balance, boundaries, self-care, mindset, and confidence, and I'm happy to say that we were um, cohort mates in our PhD program Friends and colleagues, and so it's good to get to talk to you again. Yeah. So, uh, is there anything that I missed in terms of your introduction or how you present yourself now?
1: Um, no, that's that's pretty much it. I work primarily with black women, but not solely black women, it's um, specifically in like you know high pressure jobs, women who. May have been formally uh, identified as like gifted when they were in school, Um, and you know, high achieving now in high pressure roles. So that is my general focus.
0: Very cool, awesome. Mm -hmm. So if we can, can we start in grad school? Mm -hmm. Um, So I know you you went to a master's program. Is is that right before the PhD? Okay, Mm -hmm. and I did too. And then we met at the PhD. But what made you go into your master's program for? Counseling or major family therapy. Is that correct?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So oddly enough, my, my undergrad was in marketing. So I went into corporate America right out of college, realized fairly quickly that that was absolutely not the path for me. And so I had to figure out another path and, you know, started to do some, you know, searching, some researching, some soul searching, um, just to see what it is that I really wanted to do. And looked at my current role and the things that I enjoyed the most about what I was doing had nothing to do with my actual role. It was connecting with people. It was building relationships. It was helping others through the transition and the adjustment of being where we were. Um, and so uh, like, it was a lot of, like mentorship and counseling, but as a friend and those types of things. And So even when I told my um, colleagues there, my colleagues and friends there, that I was going to pursue the master's, they were like, yep, that makes sense. So yeah, it's just like, you know, really figuring out what it is that I wanted to do. I was really interested in learning about relationships. Um, I didn't as much care about like pathology and like, you know, how the brain works as much as how relationships work. So major family therapy just seemed like the like the choice it just like oh yeah of course this um and it just so happened like this was really one of those just like kismet moments of the only marriage and family therapy program in my state was in my hometown wow yeah, and so i was like uh, yeah <laughs> i'm gonna go there and so i did i left my big old corporate job that i hated with no plan no job lined up um and applied to the program and got in for that um next semester so
0: that's awesome that's it and so what was your experience in the program like
1: i loved it it was absolutely amazing um my professors were great during my time there um my classmates, friends that I that I made while I was in the program, it was just one of those experiences where, you know, I was in school, but I was also at home. So I didn't, like, I wasn't, like, away from home and having to adjust to all those things. I would go to school and go hang out with my sister or, you know, my friends, whoever, uh, after classes um, and, you know, work during the day because I also worked full-time during my master's. Uh, so... Yeah, it was it was kind of nice cuz I just had my apartment, I went to work, I went to school, and hung out when I could, and it was it was really nice. It was stressful because I was working full time, but yeah, I really enjoyed it. The program is was and still is a really really good program.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. So, I I'm, I'm curious and this is maybe more of a selfish question for me. What did you feel like um what was your experience of the process of becoming a therapist like? Hmm. Hmm.
1: Trying to figure out how, like how to answer this. It was like wor- words that are coming to mind: unfolding, affirming. Um. In a lot of ways, it helped to rebuild some of the parts of myself that had struggled through, you know, family, family trauma and family issues. Um, yeah, like it, it, it broke down some stuff. It helped me to understand some things differently than I had previously understood them and also gave me some awareness and tools to, to not only be a good therapist, but just a better person, which I think goes hand in hand um, with each other. So yeah, it was like deeply, deeply transformative. Try not to yeah. like use the like cliche words, but that's what that would be real shit. <laughs>
0: yeah. No, I hear that. So when when during your masters did you go straight masters to PhD? Mm-hmm. Okay. That's when during your masters
1: bachelors and masters, but I went straight through masters.
0: Okay. When during your masters did you know you wanted to do a PhD?
1: After the first year. Um Yeah, after the first year. And some of it was my professors telling me that I should. Um, They, I guess they, you know, saw whatever they saw. uh, Multiple professors suggested that I go on. And um, because I don't know that I had necessarily had as much thought about it prior to that. But one of my professors um, who I later ended up working with, she was in her Ph.D. program. So she actually went to UGA. Um, And graduated from UGA and she was doing her internship while I was doing the master's and so kind of that was a connection there Um, and then we had one black professor, she was an adjunct professor in the program and she was probably the only person I had met to that point or yeah like the only black therapist that I had met to that point that I had a PhD. Like I had, of course I had professors in college that had PhDs, but like the only black professor in the program who had a marriage and family therapy PhD. And so I was like, "Oh, huh, this is a possibility as well. And then our director of the program also saying, you should think about this. And because they knew that I was doing work with people with disabilities and that I was like passionate about that. Um, I had created like a, a partnership between my job and the program to be able to provide Therapy for people with disabilities. So, like, I essentially cre- like created that partnership that they still have to, to to this day. Um, and so I guess they you know saw that, that passion and knew that there were was more to do with that. So, yeah. yeah after that, I was like, why not?
0: Yeah. And why so, what <laughs> were you? What were you like envisioning the PhD would do for you, or what were you envisioning you do after the PhD? No, you just honestly, I don't even
1: know at this point be- because. It has changed so much, like the the level of awareness and knowledge that I have about the PhD now, because it's changed so much. I'm like, what the fuck was I thinking? Is it okay me? Because... Cuss. <laughs> it's like, what was I thinking? Because um, some of it is when you are, you know, you grow up poor, you grow up in certain neighborhoods, you grow up in certain, you know, areas and with experiences. They tell you education is your ticket out. That's how you're going to, you know, get out of poverty. That's how you're going to get out the head. That's how you're going to get out of these places. And I bought into that. I absolutely bought into that of, okay, I ain't got, I'm not athletic. I can't sing. I can't dance. I got academics. So I'm going to do it. That's going to be my ticket out. Um, and so it's like, you know, I need to go to, I need to get my PhD. I don't know what this actually means. I knew professors because I've been in college. That is the extent I didn't really understand grasp. Oh, a PhD is a research degree. People said it, but I didn't know what that meant. I didn't like, I didn't really know what they were saying. I heard the words, but I didn't have context for them. Um, and so honestly, I don't know what I thought it was going to do for me, but it wouldn't, it didn't do what I, mm. (laughs) Right.
0: right. Okay. So you, uh, you applied, did you apply only to UGA?
1: I applied only to UGA.
0: I remember you saying that. Yeah. -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: Um, It was also of the mind, like if I'm going to do this, because I knew I did know it was going to be hard. That was one thing when people said that. Like I took that and I knew it was going to be hard. And so I said, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it at the place where I want to be, so that I can be near my family. And um, because also my sister, I found out my sister was pregnant during the um, the process of. No, I found out she was pregnant before I even applied, I think. So, I know I wanted to be close by. I had godchildren that um, didn't know me that well because I was away, you know, in other places when they were, you know, when they were getting older. And I didn't want that for my niece at the time. So, I knew that if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to do it at a place that I want to be, where I can get back to my family. Um, I liked that program. Um, I had, you know, looked at the professors and stuff. And... I had like six seven different schools that I had looked at but none of them spoke to me like UGA did so I'm not going to apply to places I know I don't want to be at I'm just not doing that and I would be okay with not getting in at all and not pursuing this if that was like if that was my my path so it's either this or go straight into the workforce
0: yeah so you got into UGA Mm -hmm. and then you moved to Athens, Mm -hmm. we all met, we started classes. What was that, that, that transition like that process?
1: Mm -hmm. It was interesting. It was interesting. So I, and I don't even know how much of this, you know, but I went early because I needed, like I went to school, I started that summer before our actual program started. So I came and I took some classes just so I could get the refund to be able to help with my bills because I wasn't like I didn't have enough money to to make the transition. So I came early for the sole purpose of getting a refund check to be able to. Yeah, to to function financially, Um, because I also had to finish my master's program, because at that time we graduated from we graduated in july not in may in my master's program so there was that overlap in the summer Um but because of some ways of financial aid my the way that my aid would work in my master's program the cutoff and the timing didn't work out for me to be able to get the financial aid to to take me through the summer so i had to start uga early i don't know if that made sense but
0: yeah
1: um so i went there i got connected with um we trying to um, over the summer, so got to hang out with some people during the summer, made some connections, met some other people, met Megan, some other people in the department. Um, and yeah, the summer was cool. Like it was it was it was cool. It was fine. Um, I had everything I needed done for my master's program. Um, and so it was just waiting for graduation and then waiting to start our program officially in the fall. Um, so that summer, smooth selling. That semester came met all y'all, and like, you know, that was cool. Large cohorts, like, okay, this is this is different, you know, whatever, whatever. Um, but then, yeah, like I said, I don't know how much you know about this, but the first semester was extremely rough for me, financially. And so, I had the financial strain on me to, and I don't even remember what it was like academically, um, like, for the most part, because that was my biggest stressor. Um, but I do remember being in our class, in one of our classes and getting so pissed off because we were talking about, we were talking about something and the professor, white male professor um, was talking about how certain, you know, behaviors are the reason why um, black men are in prison. And I don't, do you remember this at all? This was first semester. And yeah, the conversation essentially, uh, the connection that was being made was because of corporal punishment. That's why black men are in prison because they're violent.
0: Okay, I don't remember.
1: Yeah, and it was it was a whole thing, and you know, got into discussions in class. Um, it was a few of us, a few of us, it was all of us in our cohort in the class, and. One of our, one of our classmates, you know, she's with me. She understood the, the, um, historical context and all these different things. And, but it was like, well, violence begins violence. It's like, y'all are missing a lot of nuance here, like a whole lot of stuff. But because I couldn't back it up with like data in that very moment, what I was saying was being dismissed. And I was like, oh, this is what we're doing. This is what research does. Oh, okay. And so from then on, I'm like, fuck these numbers, (laughs) bullshit. They have no context. They have like the, the samples are skewed. Like y'all are sampling men in prison, but these same behaviors, these same experiences happen to men in college, but y'all aren't looking at that. So I'm just like, yeah, so we can problematize one particular thing, but the conclusions that were being drawn were just ridiculous. So that completely shifted like my, um, my perspective of research and how I felt about research. Um, but so that was that part of like having in class experiences. But then outside of class, I was literally losing everything. Everything that I had worked for over the past, you know, a couple of years, rebuilding myself after um, leaving my corporate job. I lost my car. I had to move out of my apartment. Um, I, I wasn't able to pay any of my bills. Um, it just I was not financially prepared for this transition to a PhD program, and. People like, even though our tuition was paid, our expenses were not, and I had the lowest paying assistantship in the department. And so, yeah, like I I struggled significantly that first semester just trying to pay my bills. So, I had to move out of my apartment um, in like November of that semester, November, December of that semester, uh, maybe even October. I don't know. I can't, I can't remember the timeline. Um, and had to sell a bunch of stuff. Like, and move into a a four-bedroom apartment with, like, three other undergrads or some shit. It was not fun.
0: I don't think I knew any of that.
1: Uh Uh-huh.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah.
1: And, like, you know, my uh, couple, like, a few few professors knew what was going on and they did what they could to help. So I do appreciate that. Like, they were, they actually rallied and, and did what they could to help, like, Come up with a plan. They set me up with one of the depart- one of the professors in the financial department to come up with a a plan of action to at least get me stabilized. Um, and then, yeah, that was that was my first semester. First
0: semester, jeez.
1: Yeah, it was fun.
0: Wow. Okay. Well, what happened next?
1: Yeah. Um. And then, so after that, I you know got to we were on uh, winter break. Um, ended the semester, you know, did did fine, got through the classes, all that good stuff. Um, and then I had a moment over the break where, because I, I had, I was going to leave. I was gone. I was like, I lost all my stuff. I hate this. These people, racist. I don't like it. <laughs> I'm out. I had applied to like 40 jobs, like 40 different, like that might be an exaggeration, but it was at least 20 mental health jobs. I had applied to a bunch of jobs. I was out. I was gone. Um, I had, you know, connected with some of my friends in my master's program, trying to get to connect to the jobs that they were in. Um, but I had a moment while I was home and I stopped and I asked myself, I was like, OK, it's gone. It's all, It's gone. There's nothing you can do about that. You can't change that. Now, what do you want? What do you want to do? Do you want this Ph.D. or do you not want this Ph.D.? And it's like, you know what? All right. That's that's behind me. I want this PhD. I've started this and I want to see it through. But I'm going to do it my way. And that was that was literally, I remember that very vividly. And I said, like, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to continue to do it my way. Fuck what these people talking about. I'm not listening to your biased ass research that you swear up and down is unbiased. Bullshit. No, it's not. Um, yeah, I'm going to do this my way. And that's, that is literally what I did. Yeah. So, the next few years were great. <laughs> <laughs> So we cuz y'all were y'all were publishing y'all asses off y'all were doing all this research for hours and hours and hours. So I was like, "No. No. I'm not doing that." Cuz first of all, y'all are paying me shit. I'm over here eating ramen noodles and soup and shit on a regular basis, and you think you're going to get all of my time and energy? I'm not doing that. I'm going home this weekend. Oh, I got something big dude I'll get it done. It'll get done, but I'm going home this weekend. I'm going to see my niece, I'm going to see my sister, I'm going to whatever event this is, and y'all can work on that.
0: So. I, I do seem to remember, I remember you seemed uh, stressed your first year mm-hmm. and I, rem- I I felt like I viewed that from afar because I don't think we had hung out maybe that much that first year. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then it seemed like the further you got in the program, like the happier you got, <laughs> which I think for some other people, it was the opposite. <laughs> yeah,
1: yes. literally, yes.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yep.
1: Cause I, I, I just wasn't, I had gotten to the point, I was like, if this doesn't happen, like if I leave this program, I'm going to be fine. Mm -hmm. I've been, I've been broke. I've been like, I've already lost everything and I'm still here. So if this doesn't work out, I need to leave this program. I'll go find a job. It won't be hard. It will not be hard for me to find a place to make money and sustain myself. If this PhD doesn't work out, I don't want to do research. I don't even necessarily want to teach. And so I'm at this point, I'm doing this to give myself a, some kind of like leg up credential wise. But if this doesn't work out, it is not the end of the world for me.
0: Right. Right. And just, just for uh, context, for any listeners that don't know as a uh, marriage and family therapist, the master's degree is the terminal degree. Mm-hmm. So we didn't have to get a PhD to practice. Maybe it helped like, you know, boosted what you could make by 15% or something. But um, it's not like psych where you got to go for the full PhD to practice. So, exactly. and as an aside, do you need to hop off at the top of the hour?
1: I'm not
0: Not get hungry. Show okay. off okay. <laughs> well, for sure, for sure. Okay, I'm just trying to time manage. Um, Okay. Very cool. So the, so first year was a struggle. Um, I I am sorry to hear all of that. I did not know all of that coming in. Um, but things got better going through you. You had a, um, so how did you, I I guess what I'm trying to get is how does your view of your career and what you wanted to do after the program, whether or not you finished, how did that evolve through your, your journey in the PhD program?
1: Yeah, it it became more of a, like, an experience and just, like, a learning process. Um, I stopped looking at the PhD as, like, my ticket out or, excuse me, as, like, a, even a next step to, like, this, like, ideal, like, role in my career. Like, that, like, I didn't even have that. I started looking at it as... I'm going to get all of the experiences that I can, um, figure out, like, you know, like learn, understand deep, more deeply about this world and like people relationships. Like, so the extent of research, if you will, was not to become a tenure track research professor. It was to have a deeper understanding of this world and people and how we work and in relationships and all those things. Um, And my my particular like research focus was from a critical lens. So really being able to look at this world um, from a critical lens. So like that is what I started to focus on. And if you remember, like part of my journey was like going to getting to do presentations in Australia doing take. I did a summer um, research thing in South Africa. And these were all things I was like, I want to do this. So I'm figure out how to make it work. And that's what I did. That was how I got to do some of my first overseas traveling. That was how I did my first overseas traveling. And
0: yeah. That's awesome. So
1: yeah.
0: so, oh, so let's say you're 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 starting your dissertation. It was your fifth year, I think. Did you start dissertating?
1: Started it in my fourth year.
0: Oh wow. That was I started it late. So you started in your fourth year. And then so while you're dissertating, what's kind of your view on job applications? Like the kind of like what's around the corner?
1: Mm -hmm. So I knew I didn't want to be. So, Okay, (laughs) I'm going back up for a second. I have always said I didn't want to be a teacher like my entire life. I was like, I don't want to be a teacher. And so the fact I even went into teaching was kind of like. What you doing, yeah? Uh, <laughs> but I, I, I did enjoy it. But uh, I, I didn't apply to any R1 positions. Uh, everything that I applied to, for the most part, was, like, teaching universities. Um, because I didn't want to, I did not, th- I, I was not interested in the publisher parish lifestyle. Like, I'm not here for it. I honestly don't like writing. Um, I mm-hmm. can't stand it. Um, and so I knew that if I was going to go into academia, which I was, it needed to be, a teaching university, and so that's all I applied to, and ended up at my master's alma mater.
0: And that's awesome. And so, how was that transition into that role after uh, getting a PhD?
1: It was. It was really good um, for a, a bunch of different reasons. So, like, part of my work now is like as a coach. Part of my work is focusing on like the the whole life, not just the career. And how the career fits into that and, you know, making all these things work together in harmony. And so that transition was really good because, again, I'm, I'm back at home with my family. I now have a niece and a nephew who adore me and I adore them. And, you know, other family members or other um, friends had, you know, finished their their degrees and had, some had to come back home. So it was uh, an opportunity to be able to like just be with my people again. And then working at a program that I loved and like really believed in with people that I really enjoyed working with. Um, so a lot of the professors and uh, supervising people that were there when I was in the program were still there. And so I already had relationships with them. They love me. I love them. So it was it was a very unique kind of journey. Uh, but again, I have been very intentional about doing things. That feel good to me along the journey and building relationships that feel good and that absolutely impacted how i was able to move post degree it wasn't you know these these difficult transitions um uh, because i kind of did what i wanted <laughs> yeah and I, I i just didn't have a lot of fear about um, like I got fear and angst about making these types of decisions. Well, what if it, if you do this, you'll get pigeonholed into this. And you'll, I don't want this shit anyway. Somebody else told me that's what I'm supposed to want. And so it's, it's very easy for me to make those kinds of decisions and say, this is what I want. And so I'm going to, I'm going to go that way. So it was, it was a beautiful transition to answer the question.
0: <laughs> that's awesome. And so you were there for, was it a year, two
1: years? Two years. I was there for two years. Um, now, it was, it was a rocky two years because <laughs> of students. <laughs> I'm just going to be real about it. I had some amazing students. I had some amazing, amazing, amazing students. And I had some issues with students that weren't amazing at all. Like there were, I still to this day, I'm like, y'all are grown ass people. And the amount of pushback for simple shit that I would get was ridiculous. And, you know, there were other pieces of this. I was the first first black grad school professor at the, at the college. Um, but I was the only black professor, only full-time black professor at the entire college when I started. And so that, like there was that dynamic, like they hadn't had a black full-time black professor in 33 years.
0: Really? Yeah. 33 years. Was that a, a, a HBCU?
1: No, no.
0: I okay I thought it was for some reason.
1: Mm-mm, mm-mm. No, this, this master's program, um, they had their first black professor in like the eighties, who happened to, be, happened to be my cousin, like down the line. Wow. <laughs> because, you know, small, small um, cities, but right. Um, yeah, I was the first full time professor because I had adjuncts, of course, but in thirty three years.
0: Wow. Yeah.
1: So that was another little right. piece that, you know, I had to navigate. Um, students weren't used to having a black professor. And I remember when I was in the program yeah. a black professor that they had, like, they gave her hell. Like, my classmates gave her hell because it was the, she's so, she's so aggressive. She's so intimidating. She's so scared. Like, what the fuck are y'all seeing? Right. And so I got some of that same stuff. I had one student write me uh, this whole letter about how I was terrorizing her and making her home feel unsafe. At the clinic, and I'm like, first of all, I'm your clinical director, and you were breaking rules, so I'm going to bring that to your attention. And but she had this whole just this whole tirade about like how I was terrorizing her and all this stuff. So I had a lot of issues with students, but I had some amazing students at the same time in those two sure. rooms. absolutely amazing students. So I don't like I don't regret any of that. I'm glad I did it, but I'm also glad I'm not doing it anymore.
0: Yeah, yeah. So what? when did you know in that process that you wanted to jump to the next thing professionally?
1: Honestly, <sighs> once I met my wife and knew that <laughs> I wasn't going to be staying here um, <laughs> staying, or staying there, I should say. Um, quite frankly, there is a possibility that if I'd never met my wife, my now wife, that I could have still been teaching there. Um because I did I didn't hate it. Yeah. I didn't hate it. I actually I enjoyed it for the most part. I just, you know, it came with other shit, which most positions do. Uh, but I very possibly could have still been there. But once I had that, like, oh, I can get out of here. Like, oh, what else can I do? What else do I want to do? I'd already started my private practice, so I knew that. I could yeah. make money. It's like I did that um, while I was also um, teaching, because professors at teaching universities don't make a whole lot of money, which is part of that like myth of you know it being any kind of ticket out. But so I was doing that and um, had my private practice. So I knew that I could make money as a private practice owner, and I knew that I could make a like probably two to three times as much as I was making as a professor. So yeah. it's like I'm out of here.
0: So, and then after you met, it, your wife's name is Kim, right? hmm After you met Kim, excuse me, um, you moved to Texas. Wait, when did that happen?
1: June 2020, at the end okay. of my second year of teaching. Um, so I was planning, I had already planned to leave. I was planning to leave in August of 2020 after the end of our, our, our um, school, Um, so their school, uh, semester ends in July or school program ends in July. And so, um, I was going to leave in August, but the pandemic hit in March. And so everything shut down, everything went online. And at that point I was like, why, why wait till August if I'm working remotely anyway? And so I went ahead and moved in June and taught, um, I did adjunct through the summer yeah, I jumped through the summer um, for like supervision and other stuff, uh, like one, maybe one of class. I think I might have been all in class. Um, and then went back for their graduation, and then I was done at the end of July.
0: Yeah. And so you, you basically had to restart your practice too, right? No. Nope. Nope. Oh, because were you doing a remote?
1: Virtual. That's the other part of okay. it. I didn't have okay. to change anything. So... I had already started doing a little bit of telehealth like I had maybe one client that I was doing one or two clients I was doing telehealth with already in my private practice and so I had to shift everybody to online but no like maybe only you know a couple didn't come cuz they didn't want to do online but you know now everybody got to do it but then so yeah I was able to continue my practice I didn't have any interruptions And I like my practice is still active in South Carolina. It's primarily active in South Carolina. I have my Texas license, but the majority of my client load is still in South Carolina. So that that was actually a benefit more than anything.
0: Very cool. And so when did you uh, start the beyond achieving, start getting into life coaching, that kind of thing?
1: So that actually happened before. I left as well. So that actually started oh, okay. in South Carolina too. Um, but it started in like April. So depending, it just hit, it had just started. And I had done a, like a group coaching program to get started with it. So I have a friend of mine who was also a coach uh, who introduces the introduced the idea and um, was kind of helping me get, get started. So I started that like end of March and like launched my first um, program in April, of 2020. And so, I had already had my practice for a year at that point and then introduced coaching a year later. Um, and yeah, it's it's been Yeah. active just since then.
0: So, what attracted you to to coaching uh as opposed to just continue to do traditional psychotherapy? Mm-hmm. Which I know you still do as well.
1: Mm-hmm. So, what I was noticing Even in therapy, a lot of the clients that I was seeing in therapy, they were coming. It was a lot of black women in my private therapy practice because I was also still doing a a fellowship at a um, community clinic. But on the private practice side, a lot of the clients were black women who were, quote unquote, high achieving black women in these great jobs, experiencing a lot of stress and burnout um but feeling you know overwhelmed like they can't you, you know take breaks they can't take any time off they can't do any of the things that would is clear that they need um and so I started to look at that more uh, closely and recognize that this is a specific need that not that not that these clients don't need therapy but there is a specific way of thinking and a specific um, like a process that's happening that I wanted to be able to focus on, like, like I wanted to specifically be able to focus on. So that's how I was. When I was, I was like seeing the need through my therapy practice, um, but I like therapy wasn't, it wasn't able to address all of the things that were happening. So yeah, I started thinking about like, how can I help these women? What can I offer? What can I do? And coaching was the natural answer to that. And so I started with self care coaching and. Really helping Black women specifically develop like self care regimens and practices, strategies, systems to kind of shift how they're using their time, Um, addressing different like mindset barriers and things that like ways that they're thinking about. Because like we, you know, you've heard this before of how we're always told we have to work twice as hard to get half as much, and that is so deeply ingrained in the, like, just in the the, the, the fabric of our bodies, and um, our minds that it leads to some very harmful practices in like decision making and fear based types of uh, decision making within like and among Black women. So yeah, I just wanted to address that specific issue. Uh, perfectionism is another big part of that. Um, lack of boundaries is another big part of that. And so, yeah, I wanted to be able to address that specific thing without the, honestly, like the limits of therapy. Like, there's some things that I just, I couldn't, I couldn't do as a therapist that I can do as a coach. And I am still very clear and specific, like, if I see clients need therapy, a lot of my clients work with a therapist as well to address, you know, those, those mental health issues. Um, But... Yeah, there was a specific need to focus on these things that therapy wasn't wasn't addressing.
0: Absolutely. And so I so I've followed your content for I don't know, a year, two years maybe. And it seems like self-care is one of these big themes that comes up and you focus on. And I, I remember when we were grad students, you had some very intentional like self-care practices and you would you would talk about them and I it, uh, I, I don't think I'd ever thought to think about self-care like intentionally as a mm-hmm. thing. Um, and so what, what has self-care meant to you, not just like recently with coaching, but just kind of like across your life? What, is, what, what does self-care stand for? Mm-hmm. And
1: thank you for, thank you for bringing that, that back to my awareness because I, I know that I've been doing this work like with myself for a long time. And I'm very, very uh, – it's, it's very important to me that I practice what I preach and that I'm not just saying things because they sound good or regurgitating what somebody else has said on the internet. So thank you for bringing that back because I really have been practicing this and, put, and, like, developing these processes for a long time. And I can't even tell you how the concept of self-care got introduced to me because I don't even know if, if it was – you know, that was – it wasn't a thing, man. Like, self-care wasn't this big term or concept then and so what it has meant to me is just simply caring like taking care of myself and not in these you know social media ways or just like you know buzzword ways of yes I'm making sure that I'm you know getting my bath and doing my pampering which are all important like those things are absolutely important but it's taking care of myself and treating myself like I actually matter like I am a human being who has needs, who is not supposed to work like a machine, like a slave, like I, like, like, I have, like I don't have limits. And so it has very much meant paying attention to my body and not letting the external world and, quite frankly, capitalism tell me that I have to kill myself for somebody else's benefit. Because
0: a lot of times that's what it is. Yeah. I, I It may sound naive, but but when you, when grad school, when I would hear you talk about it and I would see you do things and set limits to protect yourself, I uh, I don't know. I, I saw that as so kind of like foreign or like unneeded or, and I, I had a big ass ego then. Um, not that I don't now, but. Uh I think I was also just so un um, aware of the detriment of like over time just running yourself at a hundred percent or whatever percent um I was doing. Mm-hmm. Uh unaware of what the toll that would take psychologically and mm-hmm. you know physically,
1: mm-hmm.
0: which I ran into a couple years later. Mm-hmm.
1: Um yeah. and I'll be real with you, I would look at you, I'd be like. Is he
0: okay? Yeah, I don't I I uh I probably wasn't.
1: <laughs> oh, no, it was it was pretty clear. <laughs>
0: yeah. Like you yeah.
1: you were functioning, you were doing it, but it, it was absolutely clear. Like and it wasn't just you, like it that was the expectation. Yeah,
0: yeah it was it felt like the culture. Mm-hmm. Um Yeah, and I think I mean I enjoyed it. I, I have my own demons I was running from by like, you know, uh burning a candle at both ends. Um, but I think there was definitely a cultural element to it Mm -hmm. and not cultural, a culture element. And, um, and yeah, I, I, uh, right after we had Leroy, my son, Mm -hmm. I could feel this, like, almost like a, a screen or something that I've been seeing life through kind of lifted up. And I was like, Oh, fuck working 60 hours a week. And, You know, all this, the recognition for research, like, what does this actually, like, what value does this have? I feel like it's, you know, it's like fool's gold or something. Mm -hmm. Um, But anyway, you Mm -hmm. saw it so much far in advance. Um, And uh, it it was so fun watching you from afar. Um, Anyway, I don't know where I was going with that, but self-care. So you've been doing... Uh, retreats now. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Was that the first retreat you just had?
1: No, this was the second one. I did one oh, okay. last September as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, honestly, I am, I am building this whole just vision and, and structure and foundation of creating space for black women and all black women, all kinds of black women, because I will say there's also been this um, this perception that this idea of like luxury and soft life, you know, these buzz, again, these buzzwords that are coming out, you only see it in like a specific kind of black woman. And we don't talk about that a lot, but it, it very much is. And my whole point has always been self-care ain't got to cost money. It's not something you do once. It's not for people who only have the privilege of it. No, we all as human beings have a fundamental right to actually give a fuck about ourselves and do something about it. And so, yeah, I'm really trying to create this entire, um, like, I guess, movement of like all, all black women knowing that we can do like we can reserve something for ourselves. And... The number of people, and and I do recognize. Let me just put this disclaimer out there. if Somebody gonna have something to say about it. That this isn't just black women. Like, of course, like other people are overworked, other people stressed out, um, and black women are often the most marginalized and the most um, exploited among us. And so. That's why that's where my focus is. And the number of times I've heard people say, like, I've either never had a vacation or I haven't had a vacation in 10 years. I haven't taken any days off in X, Y and Z. Um, don't even know what it looks like. Don't even know what it how it feels to sit down and take a break. Like it's it's disheartening. And we look at our grandmothers, we look at our um, grandparents and just how run down they are. Just how just how beat down they've been by life. I'm like, I'm not doing this shit. I'm not doing it. Like, that does not have to be our futures. And so, that is what I'm working towards, a future where we can actually get to our, you know, older years, our later years, and just not be so beat down by life. Because life, life is going to do plenty of that on its own, but we absolutely... Sometimes, like, we, we just... Accept it, and we don't have to. We yeah. don't have to.
0: Yeah, it almost feels like it's your coaching is almost like a process of like socializing these professionals into a new mindset, mm-hmm. versus you know, therapy is maybe more like a clinical. Mm-hmm. Um, you have like you know something. Uh, what would you call it? a symptom? And we we're, we're gonna like treat a symptom or try to find. You know okay. something for it, okay. and this seems more like all encompassing
1: precisely precisely yeah i i it's not it can't just be one thing like we're we're talking about people's like their entire life like people think that it's just work like if I can get work together then da, 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 da. no like we gotta look at all the pieces like that's that's where my system thinking comes in <laughs> yeah. these things all work together, and so if we're just focusing on one then we're we're missing we're missing other parts and they're like the system's gonna just recalibrate and the other pieces are going to override so no we gotta we gotta focus on all these things we gotta we gotta work on the core of who you are so that that starts to um let like spill out into other areas of your life so yeah that's why it is very much looking at the full picture um and reshifting how we just engage with ourselves in this world around us
0: that's awesome and so you've got in terms of specific ways of working with you, you've got the retreats and then like a, an extended like one on one program. Mm-hmm, is that mm-hmm. right?
1: Yeah. So my, my main way of working is through my one on one coaching. So um, I have two different ways that people can work with me. Um, it's either on like a monthly retainer. It used to be like a 12-week program, but I noticed that people were extending their time, wanting to continue working. So I make it, it's a 12-week, um, it's a monthly retainer that has a minimum of three months. So, because um, that's the other thing, I don't I do not do ad hoc sessions. I don't do one-on-ones bec- or like one off sessions anymore because I'm trying to create meaningful, sustainable change over time. And yeah, that's just a personal choice that I've made. Um, so people can work with me for a minimum of three months or they can do my six month experience, which is a specific like we lay out a, a specific plan uh, and work through that plan. The individualized personalized plan over the six months. It includes me actually coming to the location and doing some in-person things as well. Um, and that's I would say now more people are choosing to do that than the month in retainer um, just because it, it is so focused and so Um, yeah, just intentional about in the six months, we're going to work on this, 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 we're going to transform these areas of your life and here's how we're going to do it.
0: Very cool. And so before we transition to the last part of our conversation, how can people learn more, um, or follow you? Mm -hmm. Where would you direct people to?
1: So primarily I would direct you to my Instagram, um, to engage with me more, um, it's Dr. Shaquinta, DR period Shaquinta on Instagram. Um, I do, you know, some lives and things like that. I do what one of the things I do is call Monday Morning Mindset, where I go live and we just kind of, you know, prepare for our week, prepare for our, mentally, be um, intentional about our weeks, take back some agency over our time and our days, um, you know, set us up for a positive experience because, you uh, you know, so much of our lives is just going with the flow, but nah, I get to I get to determine how I want to experience my day. I'm not just gonna roll with the punches. Uh, sometimes you have to, but if you're already creating that bank of joy and fun and care and all those things, when those moments come, you're a lot more prepared for them. So that's one thing. Um, I post a lot. Um, I have a newsletter that you can sign up on um, as well on my Instagram. Um, So I I do a monthly newsletter and sometimes, you know, throughout the month as well, sharing other tips and tricks, details, stories, those kinds of things. Uh, My website is www.beyondachieving.com, which has more information about my services. Um, Yeah. So Instagram, Dr. Period Chiquenta, www.beyondachieving.com.
0: Awesome. And so this is this is a great transition. I and this is. A question that I had for me um, but I'm sure the listeners will be interested to hear your Instagram is like picture perfect like I look at these pictures and everything and I'm like I I could not take these pictures of myself Um, do you have someone helping you either on the photo side or the the posting side or anything like that okay can you tell us a little bit (laughs) about about the insides of it
1: yeah absolutely so i don't take most of these pictures of myself some of them i do so i kind of i do a combination of just like everyday photos like whenever i'm out doing something or in house doing something so some of them are you know just you know either i take them or my wife takes them but i do a photo shoot every three to six months just to have fresh photos to post um because quite frankly i don't i don't like social media like that i don't I don't like doing the social media marketing. Um, So I like to have my photos ready to go. So I don't have to worry about, oh, am I, do I have on the right outfit today? Do I, you know, is my hair, whatever, whatever. I don't have to worry about that all the time. So I I have my photos um, and I like to keep them fresh on my website and stuff too. Uh, So yeah, I do a photo shoot with a photographer here in Houston. Their name is Jess um, of We The Romantics. So all of my photos, uh, pretty much, yeah, pretty much, all the photos you see, like the professional-looking photos, are from Jess at We the Romantics. They are amazing, absolutely amazing. Um, yeah, and then of the rest of posting, like I have, I have a designer on Retainer, and so anytime I need something designed, they design it for me. So they update my website, um, any graphics, uh, they you know do that kind of stuff for me. Um, yeah, so no, I do. I, I don't have that eye. <laughs>
0: So okay, so let, uh, so I'm trying to imagine our audience is, you know, mostly another old and cough. Mostly, um, folks in grad school. Mm-hmm. They're looking ahead to their career. You know, um, just based on the research I've looked at, fifty to seventy percent were probably thinking they're going into academia. A mm-hmm. couple years in, that's that's dropped probably in half. Mm-hmm. And so they're looking at their academic options, their industry options, you know, W2 job at a business. Um, and I think a, some percentage of them are definitely thinking about trying to be an entrepreneur, you know, putting out a shingle, selling some kind of service, maybe a product, probably a fair amount of some kind of a service associated with their training that they did in academia. So what what advice, what would you tell people who are thinking about stepping a toe in the water trying to get something out there what what should people be thinking about in terms of building a business off of their expertise Mm -hmm.
1: figure it out what it is you want to do and why and go for it like don't let any any like any thing that's like i can't do this or this doesn't make sense or whatever the case like just put it out there. If you have something that you think will help people, then share it. Let people let people see what it is that you have to offer and decide whether they want it or not. You show the value in it, whatever it is. Help under help people understand why it is important, why they need to do whatever it is and go do the thing. That is what anybody has done. All this shit is made up. All of it's made up. All of it's made up. All of it. Make some shit up. Put it out there and do your thing. Like, most of the time when things don't work out for people, it's because they they gave up. Now, there's a very small percentage of things that, like, nobody need that or this don't make no sense. But people pay for the weirdest shit. Like, so, like, just do it. And don't let your fears and your doubts and that those inner critics tell you that you can't do something. If it's something you want to do, if it's an idea you have, it's a way you want to help people. Figure out how to put it in front of the people who need to see it, and do it. That's it.
0: All right. Well, that that answers it. I'm going to start that foot finder account. <laughs> do it <laughs> <laughs>
1: look I'm here for it do whatever, do whatever you need. because the reality is like so much of what we have decided we want is because somebody told us that that's the path that we should take mm-hmm. but then we get there and we're like why isn't this working out it's because it's somebody else path that they either did take or didn't even take and they didn't told you to do it No, learn to listen to yourself learn to figure out what it is that you want and that takes Like, giving yourself actually space to listen. So many, like, I understand, you know, some of us have things that come up when we sit in those quiet quiet moments that feel uncomfortable and we don't like it. But if you can sit through that discomfort long enough to actually get to your voice, that is what makes all the difference to being able to make decisions with clarity. Decisions that feel in alignment with who you are and what you want. And you don't leave, you aren't left feeling so much resentment and stress and strife and struggle because... It's not you, Mm -hmm. but that takes courage.
0: It's true. It's very true. So what, what would you say to grad student Shaquinta, if you could go back, you know, if she's worried about her career, worried about her future, would you give her wisdom, what would you do?
1: Quite frankly, I tell her, keep going.
0: Yeah.
1: You, you were doing it. What, What you thinking, how you thinking, you are on the right track. Keep going. Like, I, I don't regret a single thing. I look back, there, there's not a single thing that I would want to... I mean, like something small, maybe. But there's not anything that I would want to have done differently. I remember one day in class... We we had some class, and I was just fed the fuck up. I was tired. I was stressed out. I had some other stuff going on. And I just walked out of one of our classes. I just walked out in the middle <laughs> And even that, like, the professor called me afterwards, and I was like, I ain't got nothing for you. I have nothing for you. I, I'm not going to try to make up no shit, no explanation. I called somebody and said, come get me. I can't stay here. And I just yeah. left class, and I went home. And I don't I don't regret those types of things, those ways of listening to what I needed in any particular moment, because those ways that I showed love to myself, because I have to take myself through all of these experiences i had to take myself through the next role and the next role and the next role and ain't nobody else gonna make sure i'm okay if i don't make sure i'm okay so just remember that like we sacrifice so much of ourselves for whatever and it doesn't it it rarely returns the dividends that we think it does
0: yeah so so what would you say to grad students right now who are looking at their career options moving forward they're weighing like i said before academia industry mm-hmm. maybe some some side hustle or, or a business they want to start do you have any advice for them in terms of navigating the next year or two of their career
1: if something doesn't feel right if something doesn't settle in your spirit you're like i don't want to do this but i but i have to no you don't no you don't and unless like now take care of yourself you know make sure that your basic needs are met you know, that, that hurricane needs here, but don't do something just because you feel like you feel pressure from somebody to do it. You feel like that's what they expect of you or whatever the case, if there's something that you want to do that, that isn't in alignment with that, then figure out how to make that happen. Um, disappoint people. Nobody ever died from disappointment. They will get over it, but you might not. So or you know, you might it might take you a little longer. Because you gotta deal with the everyday of whatever decision you're making. Let them be disappointed. So yeah, so you just don't do anything that doesn't feel like you like truly wanna be there. Yeah. You go for the things that you do.
0: I could have saved myself some bruises if I would have known that back then. <laughs>
1: should have talked to me
0: <laughs> should have should have talked to you more all right Shaquinta. um there any anything else on your mind do you want to share any closing thoughts or plugs you want to give
1: mm, for the grad students just relax just allow yourself to not take it all so seriously I know it. Like everything's, feel, everything feels so like high stakes when you're in the weeds of it. it. Feels like so much pressure to crank, 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 do, do, do. Release yourself of some of that pressure. You're still going to get there if you still want to get there. You're still going to get there because the reality is, and love you, Matt. But uh, I, I got the same places they did. Doing it the way that I wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. Hey, I think I graduated sooner, didn't I?
0: Probably making <laughs> more money too.
1: <laughs> I think mean it, yes. Um, so don't be afraid to walk your own path. Seriously, like don't be afraid to walk your own path because I I promise you it will be that much more worth it you can say, you know what, I did this, and I'm actually a whole person on the other side of it.
0: Well said. Wise words. Well, Shaquinta, I am so glad that we met in grad school. I'm so glad we are friends. Yes. And I'm so glad you came on here and talked. It was, uh, it was great chatting with you.
1: Me too. Me too. Thank you for having me.
0: Of course. I'm sure we'll do it again sometime. Yes. All right. Uh, uh, final plugs. All right. So on Instagram, mm-hmm. it's Dr. Shaquinta. Mm-hmm. and your website is www.beyondachieving.com mm-hmm. you've got coaching you've got do you have a retreat coming up another retreat schedule mm-hmm.
1: so oh, I, what i didn't say about the retreat the retreat is typically for my clients only
0: oh for sure, um, sure.
1: so they're not open retreat so yeah they're just for my clients.
0: yeah hey that's awesome all right well thank you so much for coming Chiquinta. i'll talk to you next time all right all right bye Folks, thank you for listening to the Grad School Sucks podcast, where we believe that your life and career after grad school should rock. I loved getting to catch up with Shaquinta for this episode today. She endured many trials to create a satisfying career that she has now, and it is someone that I really admire. I hope you got a lot of inspiration and insight out of today's episode. May it help you on your own journey through grad school and beyond. Be sure to follow Shaquinta on Instagram at Dr. Shaquinta and check out her website at beyondachieving.com. If you did end up enjoying today's episode, please like and subscribe, leave a comment and write a review. If you know someone who could benefit from listening to this podcast, consider sending them today's episode and let them know why they should check it out. And if you're listening to today's episode and not watching it, you can try out the video version of our podcast on our YouTube channel. Do you know someone who you think should be interviewed on the show? If you do, or you generally want to get in contact to say hello, you can shoot me an email at matt at Again, that's M-A-T-T at gradschoolsucks.com. Lastly, if you've been loving the soundtrack that plays at the beginning and end of our podcast episodes, well, that makes two of us. The musician who crafted this tune is a highly streamed lo-fi artist named Ocha. He has several albums of instrumental lo-fi and electronic music that's perfect for study sessions. You can find him on Spotify under the name Ocha, that's O-C-H-A. Go check him out next time you need some music in the background. As always, I'm your host, Matt Carlson, and I look forward to bringing you another great episode next week. See you then, grad students. So, Shaquinta, what is your superpower?
1: <sighs> My superpower. Hmm. So the, the funny thing is, I, I've actually thought about this before, and the answer keeps changing. So, I think my superpower is um, the ability to to see through the fog, to see through the bullshit, to see through whatever is presented and make sense of, like, what is beyond that. It's a little bit of, I don't know. Love it. I
0: don't
1: know. Love it. Vision, look on
0: it. Yeah. If you could be an animal, what animal would you be?
1: Oh. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> My old answer to this used to be a white tiger, a white Bengal tiger, hand style, just because they were beautiful and really powerful, and yes, but honestly, like really, I like to be a dog, in a bougie household. Yeah. Hmm. I hear that. You know, getting all the good food.
0: Good life.
1: The snuggles, good life. Dave yeah. in the sun. Mm-hmm. I want to be it. well taken care of, little puppy, little dog.
0: Love it. All right, last uh, softball. Uh, if you could retire anywhere in the world, where would you want to retire? Ooh. Hmm.
1: Hmm, that's hard. Probably Mexico.
0: Mexico. More yeah. Mexico.
1: It's the place that I've, one, been the most and have enjoyed the most and feel like there's a lot of just food, sun, beaches, the vibes, like top notch.
0: Very cool. Very cool. All right.